Well, this morning we come to the last of our sort of beginning of the year messages, and uh, we're looking at living life to the glory of God. And our text, uh, beginning at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, but also looking at many other scriptures. And if we're believers this morning, our purpose, our desire should be for God to be glorified in every part of our lives. That's true for us as individuals. It's also true as a fellowship together, as a local family of the Lord's people. And often we speak about the glory of God, we speak about living for God's glory, but what does that actually mean? What does it actually look like? You know, we come to texts like the one before us, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What does that look like? How do we apply it to our everyday lives? Now, if we're true believers this morning, we've been saved by amazing grace. We've been transformed. And no longer are we servants of sin, but we are servants of righteousness. No longer are we servants of Satan, but servants of God. We have been made new, a new creation in Christ. But friends, we know, don't we, that we still have that battle with the unredeemed flesh until we're finally brought home to glory. We know that spiritual warfare against sin, the flesh, and the enemy. And we seek to be faithful to our captain of salvation. And so we have to battle every day and put on that armor of God and seek to stand and look to the Lord. But also in that, as we go on with the Lord, we grow in our appreciation of who he is and what he has done. And we should also grow in our understanding about our identity and our union with Christ. And increasingly, we see that we kill sin and we pursue holiness because we want to know more of the Lord. And we want to walk closely with him. We want so much to be transformed into the people that he wants us to be and to be pleasing to him. Now, true believers are those who should have been overwhelmed with the reality of who God is, what he has done. And we love him because he first loved us. And we love him and we should want to live for his glory because this is the least that he deserves from us. So we ask, how do we live to the glory of God? One preacher said that this is the master key that unlocks all the treasures of sanctification. This is the way to progress spiritually, to focus on the glory of God. Now, as a family of believers here, you know, we pray for I hope that we pray for and we want to be those who have such a vision of the glory of God through his word to be filled with on the one hand that realization of our own unworthiness to stand in God's sight as a sinner and yet on the other hand to be totally lost in wonder love and praise that this same God of glory this same holy God is also a God who loves and receives sinners like you and me and it's when we have that right view of God, that great view of God, as we are humble before him and want him to be first in all that we think and feel and say and do, that we place him first in our lives, whatever we are engaged in. And so I ask you this morning, what is your view of God? Do you have a big view of God as is revealed in the scripture, or do you limit God? Have you reduced him? Have you, even at worst, made him a God after your own making and not according to what the Scriptures say? 
Do you realize his glory? Do you realize his wonder? And do you live in the light of that? The reality of God. Now, speaking of the glory of God, the Bible tells us that God made everything for his glory. Think of Romans 11. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. We see that in the creation all around us. What did we read in Psalm 19? The heavens declare the glory of God. We're really blessed to be in this part of the world because we see the beauty and the wonder of that all the time. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. You see it as well in the the animate creation, as it were, all around us, Isaiah 43. The beast of the field will honor me. Now, we know that animals and the like are not made in the image of God for relationships, but they all point to a creator. You think of the angels of heaven who have the responsibility to give glory to God. We saw that recently when we spent time over Christmas thinking about the coming of Jesus. What did the angels declare? Luke 2, glory to God in the highest all that God has made is designed to give him glory and that is absolutely true concerning us those of us all of us made in his image and Paul expresses this in 1 Timothy 1 now to the king eternal immortal invisible to God who alone is wise be honor and glory forever and ever amen And so the Bible says that all people, including you, including me, are commanded to give God glory. And when people don't do that, it reveals their fallen state, their sinfulness and their rebellious hearts against God, against the Lord, against his rule. And that's one of the reasons for the condemnation that faces all those who stay in that condition, who are set against the Lord. Think of Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has showed it to them. And here it is. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so when people don't give God glory, it reveals where they are. You know, think of some of the great warnings that we see in the scriptures. Think of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel 4, verse 30, Nebuchadnezzar, the great ruler of Babylon. And he looks out from his palace roof and he surveys so much of his empire and he can look as far as the eye can see and it's all his. And he says, is this not great Babylon? that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and the honor of my majesty. Pagan ruler of the mighty Babylonian empire takes all the glory to himself as he surveys the greatness of what he has built. And whilst those very words were in his mouth, God intervenes. And a voice comes from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and they shall drive you from men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And the fulfillment's immediate. 
And Nebuchadnezzar, this mighty king in the world's eyes, is reduced to grazing like a wild animal. No longer able to think rationally, but he's reduced to a beast of the earth. And at the end of that judgment, Daniel 4, 34, at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honoured him who lives forever. Such a powerful illustration concerning someone seeking to rob God of his glory. Ask the Old Testament, what about the New? Well, there's another warning in the New too. Acts 12, verses 21 to 24, we see this with Herod. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him. Why? Because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. And quite simply there, Herod had declared that day to be Herod's day. And he wanted all the adulation for himself, wanted everyone to give him honour. He didn't glorify God. And the consequences were immediate. And again, it points us to the ultimate final reckoning that will come to all who do not give God the glory that he is due. Every person ever created has been given this command and obligation to glorify God. People who are brought to give God glory will spend forever in his presence. People who do not give God glory will spend forever in that condemnation. Judgment falls on those who refuse to give God glory in the way that he is revealed. And that is only through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, just before we look at some practical applications, I want you to understand something about the glory of God. Two particular parts. There are two aspects to God's glory. The first aspect is the glory that belongs to his person. In other words, who he is. It's his. Now, the official title for that is his intrinsic glory. Now, we cannot give him that glory. It's his. And so Acts 7 verse 2, he's called the God of glory. So literally, he is the God who is himself glory. He is glorious. He defines glory. That glory can't be given to him. It can't be removed from him. It can't ever be diminished. Isaiah 48, I will not give my glory to another. And so with that, we can only ever acknowledge that. We can only affirm the truth of that and ascribe to God that glory and worship him as the God of glory. So that's the glory that is his. But the other aspect is the glory that we give to him when we worship him and we honour him. Now the official title for that is his extrinsic glory. Now you don't need to worry about the fancy title, just that we give that to him when we worship Psalm 29, give unto the Lord glory. Or Ephesians 3, to him be glory in the church. So when we praise him as individuals and as a fellowship together, we affirm that glory. It doesn't add to God. If we don't worship, it doesn't take away from him. But it is our responsibility and it's our delight, if we're his, to render to him the worship that he deserves. 
and the recognition of his glory. And so you've got these two parts of God's glory. God is glorious, and we give him glory when we worship him. So how do we do that? Well, some practical points. We glorify God first and foremost when we trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's the starting point. When a person is brought to see their sin and their brokenness and their need of a saviour, and when they're enabled by God's grace to repent of their sin, to trust Jesus, his work upon the cross, to be saved, that gives God glory. It's wonderful when people are saved because it glorifies God. Salvation is all of him from beginning to end. It's all of grace. So when a person is given to embrace Christ and believe in Jesus and believe the gospel and confess him as Lord and Savior, they glorify God. Think of John 5. Jesus said, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. We need to be very clear. If you have not come to God by the way that he has set in place... And that's through Jesus alone. You cannot honor or glorify God. It's all bound up in knowing Jesus, knowing the Savior. And outside of him, you cannot glorify God, and you will suffer the consequences of all who refuse to give him glory. So living to the glory of God must begin with trusting Jesus Christ, with believing the gospel, with confessing Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. And so I urge you this morning, if you've not done that, then you cannot glorify God. And so now, now is the day of salvation. Glorify him by trusting Jesus for yourself. And that's where it begins. But then, when we do know the Lord, we glorify God when it is our priority and our purpose to glorify him. That's where our text comes in that we read in 1 Corinthians 10. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You know, that phrase, whatever you do, is a large phrase. And it applies to all things. Whatever you do, whatever your circumstances, even what you must think or may think is the most mundane, the most routine thing in your life the very minor and small details can be done in a manner that glorifies God. That was one of the great things about the Reformation. They, they moved away from this idea that only those who served in a special capacity could glorify God, and, well, the common people, they couldn't do that. The Reformers said, no, that's nonsense. You can do all things to the glory of God, even the most mundane things. And it doesn't matter what it is, we glorify God when it is our whole attitude in whatever we are doing to exalt Jesus and to live holy and to show that grace in our lives. And our purpose should be to glorify God every day, no matter what the cost. And it can cost to glorify God. It can cost to be faithful to him. You know, I was thinking of an example of this from the Old Testament and I remembered Exodus 32. And uh, just to remind you, on that occasion, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai after receiving the law. And maybe some of you remember when he comes down, he's confronted with a people who've just gone all over the place. 
and they've gone into terrible sin and idolatry and they turned to worship a golden calf and worse, it was under the leadership of Aaron. And it was a total violation of God's command and when Moses confronts them, there's this raft of poor excuses. And Moses sees that the people have, have lost sight and they're out of control and he stands at the gate of the camp and he challenges that all who are going to be for the Lord and glorify him should come over to him and stand with him. The sons of Levi, they are the ones who go. Interestingly, Levi is responsible for service to the temple and the worship of God in the tabernacle. They go and they stand with Moses. And then it says, verse 27, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. You see, God's honor was at stake. The commandment had been violated and now there was this judgment and the sons of Levi who had stood with Moses, they would be the means through which this judgment would come. And it was a test. Would they still glorify God even if it came at great cost? What did they do? Well, we're told, verse 28, the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. The judgment was clear, it was severe, and the Levites obeyed the Lord because they were concerned about God's honor and his glory. They say, well, surely we're not going to be asked to do anything like that. Well, we're not going to be put in a position like that, but the principle is that if we love God and we want to honor him, we do that when we prefer his glory, whatever the cost. We'll never need to do what the Levites did, but it may cost us when we put God first and glorify him sometimes in terms of our relationships with others. You know, maybe in the, the circles in which we move, when we put God first, it will come at a cost. And it's only when we have that all-consuming view of God that we're taken up with his glory that we realize that he should be first that we'll be willing to do that. And so I ask you this morning, how committed to you are you to the glory of God? Even if it costs you. Isaiah called to the remnant who were being persecuted in Isaiah 24, therefore glorify the Lord. You know, you think of even to the last when we're facing death, even then our prayer should be that we will glorify God. Do you remember when Jesus said to Peter concerning the end of his life and how he'd be crucified? He said, when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And then it says this, this he spoke, this Jesus spoke to Peter, signifying by what death he will glorify God, even in death. Living to the glory of God means that you prefer his glory over all things. It is your purpose day by day. I wonder if we really live like that. I wonder if our, our view of God and our walk with the Lord is such that we really do live with that awareness that we are before him every day. Living for his glory. But also, practically, another element is we glorify God when we are grieved when he's dishonored. 
It brings God glory when our hearts are so much for him, we love him with such an intensity that when we see things that dishonor him, when we see things that that affect his cause, it grieves us. You know, David shows the heart of a man seeking the glory of God in Psalm 69. Zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And so this zeal is a, is a deep love. It is a passion in a defensive sense. It means a desire to protect. And David expresses his anguish and concern for the house of God. And he's saying, when the name of God is dishonored, I feel that. I feel that pain. The true fulfillment, of course, is in the Lord Jesus in John 2 when he goes into the temple and he's so moved with the abuses in the temple that he he cleanses it in righteous anger. And his disciples look on and they see the fulfillment because they think of Psalm 69 and they say, zeal for your house consumes me. There was a missionary called Henry Martin many, many, many years ago and uh, he went to India And uh, he went to India and he was stunned with the horrors of pagan worship when he first arrived. And he went to a temple. In in that temple, as he saw what was taking place, he was so overwrought with agony and sorrow that in his diary he said, I ran out of the place with tears coming down my face. I cannot endure existing if Jesus is to be so dishonored. You know, why, why should we be concerned about error concerning the gospel or error in the church? Why should we be unashamed of standing for the gospel and against all that would do it harm? Why should we stand faithful in this day when it's so difficult, when there's so much apathy amongst so many who call themselves the Lord's people? It's because we live for God's glory and it grieves us when he is dishonored, when Christ is dishonored, when his cause is dishonored. We glorify God when that is something that's on our hearts. We also glorify God, another practical outworking, when we are outdone by others as long as Christ is glorified. Friends, this is a very hard lesson. There are a lot of people who are carrying a lot of jealousy and bitterness because they think they deserve more recognition or a better situation than others. And they really struggle if someone else or something succeeds. That's true in life generally, and it's true in ministry. But if you're living your life for the glory of God, it is never about you. It's always about him. That Christ would be exalted, that he would be first. Do you remember the time when Paul was in chains and he was writing to the believers at Philippi? And whilst he's in those chains, he speaks of those who were preaching Christ from envy and strife. And there were those who were spreading rumors, those who were slandering Paul, those who were using his imprisonment to forward themselves. And verse 17 of Philippians 1 says that they were preaching Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives and also thinking to cause Paul distress and harm even whilst he was in prison. And they wanted to get people to forget about Paul, to not worry about him. 
And so these people were preaching the gospel with hearts full of ambition and pride and strife. They were saying terrible things to defame and dishonor the character of Paul. Well, how would you react to that? How would you respond to that? Well, we, surely some of us we want to justify ourselves. This isn't right. We deserve better than this. What was Paul's response? Well, his response was, so what? What a gracious attitude. He says this, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. He says, I don't care what happens to me. What I care about is the glory of God, the gospel of Christ, and if they preach the gospel affirming me or defaming me, that doesn't matter as long as Jesus is proclaimed. We live life to the glory of God when we genuinely feel joy when someone else does or has the potential to do what we do for the Lord better and with more blessing. And that is so hard. You know, sometimes when we seek to be faithful and we look for the Lord to bless and, you know, there are others who point out what's happening elsewhere and it seems though the Lord's working there. What is our reaction then? We have to say, well, if Christ is preached... I rejoice. And we glorify God, friends, when we trust him. This is so simple, isn't it? Romans 4, 20, speaking of Abraham, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. This text is speaking about Abraham and the promise of God. It shows us that God is glorified when we trust him. Just like Abraham, when we are strong in the faith, Unbelief questions God's nature. Unbelief makes people think that God is not everything that he is. You know, friends, we dishonor the Lord when we claim to believe in his power, when we claim to believe in his wisdom and his goodness and his mercy and his providence and his sovereignty, and then when the trouble comes, well, we throw it all back at him. And we don't trust him. We don't think that he's able to do what he said he could do. Faith that knows no impossibilities with God. Faith that trusts God gives him glory. Now we need help in this. Remember even Abraham wavered in waiting for the promise, looking to take matters in his own hands. But ultimately his faith grew and he stands as a worthy example. Or you think of Noah, 120 years to build the ark. Nobody had seen rain. Nobody had seen it rain. They thought he was out of his mind. But Noah trusted the Lord. And he kept on trusting even when people mocked him and ridiculed him and glorified God by taking him at his word. Practically, dear friend, you say you trust God. You say you believe in God. You say that you've given your life to the Lord. You say that grace is amazing. You say that he's your God, that he's the master of the universe, that he's the Lord of all that exists, that he can take care of you and meet all your needs. But what happens when all of a sudden something goes wrong in your life and you turn on the Lord and you move away and you don't trust him? And what happens is you've diminished people's understanding of who God really must be. We glorify God when we trust him, not only in the good times, 
but in those very bad times. And even though it's hard and it's dark and the clouds gather, we still trust him. We trust him and take him at his word. That is when we glorify him. And then, last couple of things as we close. We glorify God when we are fruitful in our Christian lives. John 15, verse 8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Fruitfulness glorifies God. His character is at stake. Again, if we claim that we have got a transformed life, that God has intervened in us, that grace is at work, it should show itself in spiritual fruit. We should grow and we should show these things. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 7, Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Well, certainly not the Lord. You expect to plant and to grow and to have fruit. Philippians 1.11, Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Well, you say, well, what are those fruits of righteousness? Well, fruit in our attitudes. We glorify God when we manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control, and all the other elements of a right spiritual attitude, they are the fruits, the outworking of God in our lives, and we glorify Him when we show those things. And also fruit in our actions in what we do. We glorify God in righteous conduct and service and behavior. You know, there are, again, various parts of this. You know, think of Romans 1 verse 13 when Paul says, I planned to come to you, but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you also. What was he saying on that occasion? Well, he was saying, I want to come to Rome so that I can preach the gospel and see some fruit. In that sense... It's people coming to trust Jesus. That's the first type of spiritual action. But then as it goes on, we want our lives to show in our actions, in the things that we do, the glory of God and the work of God in us. And so this fruit that we look for to glorify God is in our attitudes, the way that we are, and also in the things that we do. And these things have to come together under the Lord, the work of the Spirit, so when grace is seen in godly attitudes and actions, all the glory goes to God. Why? Because we can't do these things ourselves. We can't just stir them up in us. It's God who works in us and through us. But there is a warning. You know, if you just have action with no God-honoring attitude, there is a very real danger of legalism. You see, the Pharisees did a lot of things that seemed very pious and religious, but their heart was dead. God is glorified in the fruit that starts on the inside and works its way out. God must be at work in us to change us, to shape us, and that shows itself in what we do. And we glorify God, dear friends, as we live for him and as we praise him. We should be a people of praise. We should want to worship him. Psalm 50, whoever offers praise glorifies me. When you praise the Lord, however inadequate it may seem, when you praise the Lord, you give him glory. 
That's such a wonderful thing. What is praise? Praise is declaring God's glorious nature and his wonderful works and being thankful for them both. It's rehearsing and reciting who God is. It is giving God honour for who he is, rejoicing in his glory and his power and his presence and his might and his grace and his mercy, all of those wonderful elements of his character. And it's also declaring his works. And we do that in our praise. We, we go back over what God has done. We rejoice in the wonderful works of God. You see that in the Old Testament in the Psalms when the psalmist rehearses again and again what God has done, affirming the glory of God and the goodness of God, the greatness of God. And it's not just there when we remember and rejoice in Jesus and his redeeming work and the cross and the resurrection, all those things, the ascension, his exaltation, his return. We glorify God by praising him. And our eternity will be full of praise. Praising God, rejoicing in our Saviour. Worthy is the Lamb. And friends, surely, in all of these things, as we live for the glory of God, we should want to glorify him, not only as we live, but also by bringing others to him. We glorify God when our heart is to reach out with the gospel and to see others come to Jesus Christ. Romans 1.5, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Paul explains that they went out to preach the gospel for the glory of God, for the sake of his name. Same emphasis in 3 John 7. They went forth for his name's sake. 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says he's in real difficulty in gospel ministry. He's afflicted, but he's not crushed. He's perplexed, but he's not despairing. He's persecuted, but he's not forsaken. He's struck down, but he's not destroyed. He's hanging on by his fingernails. Every day could be the end of his life, and it's because of his faithfulness to the gospel. And it comes because the life of Christ is being manifest in him. He lives with that urgency, the possibility of death to get the gospel out. And you say, well, why didn't he just take it easy? You know, he'd been doing it for so long. Why didn't he just take it easy? He said, I believed and therefore I spoke. There's a great resolve. And he says, for all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. He says that more and more people may be saved and give thanks to God, that there is just an abounding of glory to God. He says, I love to see people saved. I love to see people converted, so that it's another voice to praise God. We live to the glory of God when we are doing all we can to bring others to glorify God as well. And friends, if we live like this, it's amazing how all-consuming that vision of light and glory will become. 2 Corinthians 3.18, We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. As you gaze at his glory as you're taken up with him, as you lose yourself in the shining vision of the glory of God, you are being changed. 
You're being transformed. The problem is we don't gaze where we should. We don't take ourselves to gaze upon the Saviour as we should. But when we do, the Holy Spirit continues to change us and make us like him, ever being changed and fitted for that great and final day when it will come all together and we will be with Christ. And we shall be made like him and how we will worship him then in the glory everlasting. Friend, I don't know what fires your heart. Some of you, I don't know where your passions really are. But they should be for God and his glory and for Jesus Christ. And I pray that this year that they would be. And that as individuals and as a people, we would be for his glory. And all around would see it too. And that others would join us and glorify him as well by trusting Jesus. May it be so. Amen.